Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. The title is The Demon's Faith. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Most people here probably agree with that statement. If you do not agree with that statement, you are not a Christian. If you do not agree with that statement, you cannot be saved. And you are destined for eternal hell. As Jesus himself said in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, so far, that should not be highly controversial, at least not within uh, a church. But the surprising truth of our passage from Mark 3 this morning is that agreeing that Jesus is the Son of God is not enough. It's not enough to save you. More is required. My simple proof, even the demons, the evil spirits in our passage this morning, even they say to Jesus, you are the son of God. Yet they are not saved by their admission. They remain condemned. But as it is with these demons, so it will be with many people who call themselves Christians. That is, many people who agree that Jesus is the son of God are not born again. They agree with this truth, but remain unregenerate. They will be very surprised on that last day when they stand before him, before the Lord Jesus, saying, Lord, Lord, only to hear, depart from me, I never knew you. They will be like the wedding guests without the wedding clothes, speechless and cast out. They will be, as our pastor has said, they will be surprised by hell. So more is required than just saying you are the son of God. What is that more? It is saving faith. It is entrustment, submission of our whole selves to the Lord Jesus Christ and reliance on his perfect righteousness alone. So let us start with the basics. Jesus Christ is the son of God. He is the promised Messiah. As far back as Genesis 3, God promised sinful man that a savior would come to crush the head of the serpent. Many promises of this savior are found throughout the Old Testament, including Daniel 9, Deuteronomy 18, Ezekiel 37, Micah 5, and many, perhaps most, of the Psalms. The book of Isaiah is especially rich in messianic prophecy, foretelling the virgin birth of Emmanuel, God with us, in chapter 7, foretelling his rule, chapter 9, and his substitutionary death in our behalf, in chapter 53. He is the one who will lead us to and on the highway of holiness, found in chapter 35. Now, Jesus himself is this promised Messiah. He is very God. He said so. John 8, 58, he said, before Abraham was, I am. Clearly invoking the I am, the name of God from Exodus 3. 
In John 10, 30, he says, I and the Father are one. John 5, 18 says Jesus made himself equal with God. And in John 5, 19 through 23, Jesus repeatedly refers to himself as the son, not a son, the son, taking on the messianic mantle. And we see him doing a number of things that only God does or can do. We see him claiming God's glory for himself, John 17, 5. God does not share his glory with another, and yet Jesus claims this glory for himself. Jesus receives worship in Matthew 14, 33. Worship is reserved for God alone, and yet Jesus receives it. He forgives sin, Mark chapter 2. Only God can forgive sin, and yet here is this Jesus forgiving sin. And he taught with authority, Mark 1, 22, and Matthew 7, 29. See, the teachers of their time taught about the word, but Jesus, the word made flesh, came and taught with authority. He did a number of things that were reserved for God alone, but he also expressly claimed to be God, to be this Messiah. In Matthew 16, he asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And when Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus did not say, no, no, you've made a mistake. Rather, he said, blessed are you, for this was revealed to you not by man, but by my father in heaven. Affirming that statement, he is the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Matthew twenty-eight eighteen. all authority. And when the high priest charged Jesus under oath to tell if you are the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus said, yes, it is as you say. And you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one in heaven. Matthew 26. He told them that he would be betrayed, given over to the chief priest, crucified and raised on the third day, Matthew 20. He said it and it happened. So it's as clear as can be from the Holy Scriptures, Jesus Christ is this promised Messiah. He is very God. He is not some mere prophet. He is not merely a good man or a great man or even the greatest man who ever lived. He is not a mere servant of God or, or an under God. He is not the first created. He is not a super angel. He is God, uncreated, the eternal word. He was there in the beginning. He was with God and he is God. As Colossians 2 tells us, all the fullness of the deity exists in him in bodily form. He is of one substance, filioque, one substance with the Father. He is the second person of the Trinity, the three-in-one Godhead. Jesus' status as very God, his godness, is an essential Christian doctrine. That is, if you do not agree that he is the Son of God, that he is very God, then you deny the truth of the Bible. You deny the word of God, and you call Jesus himself a liar. And you are not a Christian. Colossians 2.19, I just referred to, says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity, that is, all the fullness of God, lives in bodily form. John 1 says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And it says the word became flesh in this Jesus Christ. So he is God. And Hebrews 1, 3 says the son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. The Greek word is character. He's the character of God. And in Luke 9, 35, God the father testified, this is my son whom I have chosen. 
And of course, we know that God the Father declared Jesus perfect, sinless, and infinite by raising him from the dead. Acts 2 and Hebrews 4 explain that. Death could not keep a hold on him because he was sinless. And he paid the full price for our sin because he himself is infinite God. Therefore, to deny the full godness of Jesus Christ or to demote him to some lesser station, you must reject the Holy Scriptures. You must reject God's own clear declarations about the Son. Now, despite the clarity of the Bible on this point and despite all other evidence, many will still deny that Jesus Christ is God. Many will still deny that he existed, that he lived, that he died, and that he was raised again. They are lying. And even as they lie and deny that Jesus is Lord, they know deep down that it is a lie. They know deep down that there is a God and that they are sinners who deserve God's just wrath in eternal hell. They know deep down that Jesus Christ is the only way to be saved. Now these truths about God, these truths about Jesus Christ are obvious from creation, Roman 1.20. It is obvious from the Holy Scriptures, which are now available in virtually every language, everywhere, all the time for free. It is obvious from their consciences, the remnant of the image and likeness of God in sinful man. So everyone knows the basics, at least, about God. Everyone. As Psalm 19.1 tells us, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim him. Their voice goes out into all the earth. So everyone has heard these voices speaking. Yes, everyone knows the truth, but they hate the truth. And so as Romans 1.18 tells us, they suppress this truth that they hate. They suppress it by their wickedness. That is, the heavens declare, the scriptures declare, our own consciences declare, but sinful man shuts his eyes, plugs his ears, and shouts, There is no God, over and over and over again, as loud as he can. Sinful man sins and sins and sins the more to suppress his accusing conscience, to kill the conscience, and to shout down God who freely offers salvation to him. When we think about this, all we can say is, Oh, the sinfulness of sin. If you don't believe me, just look at the religious leaders of Jesus' time. In Acts 4.16, they are discussing what to do with Peter and John, who have just healed a crippled beggar and preached the gospel. So they gather around to discuss what, what should we do about this. And the Sanhedrin says, what shall we do with these men? Everyone knows that they have done an outstanding miracle and we cannot deny it. Cannot deny it. Not maybe we should consider this gospel in light of the outstanding miracle they performed. Not maybe we should repent and put our faith in this Jesus that they proclaim. Not we think they defrauded everybody. We think it's a fake. No, they agreed they did an outstanding miracle, but they said we cannot deny it. So we agree it happened, but we hate it. We don't like it. So what's their solution? Verse 17 tells us to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people We must warn these men to speak no longer in this name, in the name of Jesus. So let me translate. We must suppress the truth. Or look at Jesus' death and resurrection. He predicted that it would happen, and they all mocked him for it at the time. You can look at John 8.22 for one example. They put Jesus to death, and Roman soldiers stabbed him in the side with a spear to make sure he was good and dead. John 19.34. They sealed him up in a tomb with a huge boulder. They posted a guard 
so that nobody could steal his body and claim that he rose again. Matthew 27. And what do they do when all he predicted, all he foretold came to pass? What do they do when the soldiers come and report all that happened? The tomb is empty. The stone is rolled away. The grave clothes are there folded, but there's no dead man inside. Matthew 28, 12. It says they gave the soldiers a large sum of money and told them to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. In other words, they bribed these soldiers to lie and to cover it up and to suppress the truth. Yes, the sinful mind is indeed hostile to God. Sinful man hates God's authority, and so he lies to himself and to everyone else, saying, There is no God, so I can do what I want. Now, although the devil and his demons know that there is a God, they still lie to you about it and try to convince you that the holy God they hate is not real. See, the devil is a liar and the father of lies, John eight forty four. He hates God. He hates God's people. And he is determined to spend his considerable talent, his considerable guile, and his supernatural power to destroy as many as possible. The devil lied to Adam and Eve in the garden, plunging the world into sin. His lies, you will not surely die. You will be like God. God is against you, but I'm for you. I'm the one who's going to lead you to the good way, he said to them. He lied. He knew it was all false when he said it. He knew they would surely die. He knew they would not be like God. But he lied to them because he wanted them to surely die. And it's not just he lied in the garden. He said to Job through Mrs. Job, curse God and die. He said to Jesus through St. Peter, don't go to the cross. It's not the good way to go. Lies, lies, lies. So I say don't be like Adam and Eve and don't believe the lies that the devil is peddling. Look at it this way. The devil who is telling you these lies doesn't believe them either. So why should you? So maybe by now you agree that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, part of the eternal trinity, the Godhead, that he is very God of very God. In other words, perhaps you agree, at least you should agree, that this Jesus is the son of God. Well, if so, understand that you are only halfway there. Your agreement without more cannot save you. No more is required. So agreeing that Jesus is the Christ does not save you. Now many, perhaps most in our time, think that this is the big question. Is Jesus God or is he not God? Are the things about him true or are they not true? That's not really actually the difficult question. That's the easy question. He is God. He is the Son of God. As we see in our text this morning, this argument that Jesus is the Son of God is not really even the subject of dispute or controversy. Even the evil spirits... The demons, even they agree, God's sworn enemies agree, you are the son of God. It says right here in verse 11, whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. So they not only confess this, but they're subject to his authority. They fall down before him. The devil and his demons know all about God. The devil was in heaven with God and was cast out in rebellion. The devil does not dispute the existence of God. Look at Matthew 4, 6. He's meeting with Jesus in the desert and the devil says, if you are the son of God, in other words, since or because you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and you will not strike your foot against a stone. So see, the devil has no doubt that Jesus is the son of God. He knows it. He even applies the messianic prophecy of Psalm 91 to Jesus. So he knows who he's talking to and who he's talking about. 
You may be confused, but Satan is not confused about God or about Jesus. He knows all about it. He, though rebellious, operates under God's authority and within the limits that God places upon him. We can look as but one example at Job 1 and 2. God places limits on what Satan can do to Job, and Satan is powerless to exceed those limits. And so also these demons here. If you have reached a point of agreeing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, don't congratulate yourself. You just have the devil's faith. That's not much of an achievement, and it's certainly not a saving declaration. One of the big lies of our time, and I'm sorry to say one of the big lies of the modern church, is that you will be saved if you simply believe in God. Or if you believe in Jesus and accept him into your heart, whatever that means. This is a lie. This is the devil's faith. This is a mere ascensus faith, just mere agreement with facts. It does not work for the devil, and it will not work for you. As James 2.19 says, you believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and tremble. The evil spirits in this morning's text say, you are the son of God. See, they clearly believe that Jesus is who he says he is. He is the Messiah, very God of very God. They believe it, but they're not saved. So simply by believing that, you will not be saved either. Or recall, this is not a a one-off, recall the demons cast out of the demoniac, cast out of the crazy man in the tombs in Matthew 8. They say to Jesus, what do you want with us, son of God? Have you come to torture us before the appointed time? See, they too believe in Jesus. They believe who he is. But they're not saved. No, mere belief is mere, mere ascensus is not enough to save you. Those demons are cast into the pigs and plunged to their death. We see this also with the demons cast out by Jesus at the synagogue in Luke 4.34. Those demons say, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. They obey Jesus' command to come out of the man, a further acknowledgement that Jesus is Lord and that they believe it. They do what he said Uh, that they should do. These demons have better theology, perhaps, than 90% of the modern churches, but they are not saved. So it is clear that correct information, agreement with this correct information about God, is not enough. So what does it take? I told you what what doesn't do the job, what does do the job. We need saving faith. We need fiducia. We need entrustment of my whole self To Christ alone for my salvation. I must confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord. I must believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead. I must abandon any reliance on myself or my own righteousness and rely only on the person and work of Jesus Christ for my salvation. I must humble myself. I must bow my knee to Jesus Christ and cry out, have mercy on me, a sinner. I must declare him to be my Savior and my Lord and declare myself to be his obedient servant, his bond slave. I must repent of my sins, confessing and forsaking them and purposing to walk in obedience to my new master, the Lord Jesus. All of this goes hand in hand with saving faith and flows from a new heart given to me by God in regeneration. Now, it's true that there is an element of mystery here, even though it is our human responsibility and moral duty to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord 
and to entrust ourselves to him alone for salvation, even though we're responsible for repenting of all of our sins, we are all morally incapable of doing so. We need God. He must give us the gifts of repentance and saving faith. We need him to regenerate us and make us dead sinners alive. Our pastor has said it is a divine gift and human responsibility at the same time. But we need his divine gifts to cause and enable us to fulfill our human responsibilities. It is not a matter of incantations or religious ceremony. It is the very work of God. We do not have perfect understanding, but we know this. He calls us to come and he enables us to come. And he will not turn away anyone who comes. It is guaranteed by Jesus Christ, John 6, 37. Anyone who comes to me, I will not turn away, he said. So I say, trust in God. Believe his good promises. Obey his command to cry out to him for mercy. Obey his command to repent, Acts 17, 30. Obey his command to confess him as Lord. To bow your knee in humble submission and ask him to save you. To change your heart, to turn you from a bad tree to a good tree. If you ask him, he will do it. He will enable you to do what he commands. By his irresistible grace, you can do it. As Calvin famously said, what God commands us to do by his word, he enables us to do by his Holy Spirit. So stop making excuses. Don't point it all to mystery and say there's nothing I can do about it. Don't settle for mere assensus faith, for mere agreement for the devil's faith. Don't settle for a form of godliness that has no power. Don't settle for an empty, heartless shell or veneer of Christianity. Instead, cry out to God for regeneration, to be born again, and he will not disappoint you. He will not turn you away. He will save you. And I want to say, if you think you have already done so, don't be so sure. Many have foundered on the shoals of a census Christianity. Many have settled for the devil's faith, thinking it is enough. Such people live their whole lives totally deceived, thinking they are born again when they are not. They may go to church every week. They may be able to answer every Bible trivia question or to recite various creeds and confessions. They may have a Greek New Testament or a degree from Bible college. They may even be so holy as to be on the worship team. They may even be leaders or elders or pastors. None of these things, none of these positions can save you. Only true saving faith, fiducia, a product of regeneration by the Holy Spirit of God, only this can save you. Without it, you will be damned and deceived. Such counterfeit Christians will be very disappointed and surprised, as I already said, when they face judgment, crying out, Lord, Lord, only to hear, depart from me, I never knew you. That's not just a story. That's going to happen to some people. Make sure it doesn't happen to you. As one example, we can look at our crowd in Mark 3. There was a big crowd that came to Jesus. Now, they seem very, very spiritual. They follow Jesus from all over the place to a remote location, verse 7. It shows they had some desire to be near Jesus. They came from all over the place, verse 8. It's difficult to travel in that time, and yet they came from all over the place to a remote location. They even crowded around Jesus to the point that he had to teach from a boat. 
So they were so eager to get to him that he had to go teach out in a small boat. But I asked, what were they really there for? Were they there to follow Jesus, to hear his teaching and obey him? Is that why they came? It's very likely from the parallel passage in Luke 6 that this is where Jesus taught about the Beatitudes, loving one's enemies, about avoiding hypocrisy, about knowing a tree by its fruit, and so on. But interestingly, we are not told that any of these people were born again, that any of these people were saved, or that any of these people became his followers. Maybe they did. Maybe some did. Maybe not. But we're not told that. We are told in verse 10 that many were healed of various diseases. And we don't seem to see this crowd again afterwards. It was a large crowd, a great multitude, it says in the King James Version. So I ask, after they were healed of their diseases, where did they go? We cannot say for sure, but it appears likely that many came simply to be healed of their diseases. And then they went home physically healthier, but fundamentally unchanged. As those confessing Jesus as Lord and Savior, we must guard against this kind of empty coming. Coming to Jesus to get something. To get health. To get wealth. To get community life. To get a husband. To get a soothed conscience. To gain respectability. I go to church. I must be a respectable person. If, as some of those, you come to Jesus to get healed of your worldly problems, if that's what you're doing, you too have been deceived. He is no mere guru offering health and wealth or your best life now. A mere guru dies and stays dead. He cannot save you, but Jesus died and was raised again. Jesus is eternal God who came to pay the full wrath of God in our place, and he did it. He did not merely come to save us from our earthly problems. Rather, he came to save us from our sin. To save us from the penalty of eternal hell that is due to us because of our sin. And to save us from sin's ruling power in our lives. He came to be our Savior and our Lord. And if we come to Jesus for some other purpose, for any other purpose, for some lowly material purpose. If we come to Jesus to get stuff, you might get it, but that's all you're going to get. Your fundamental problem, your sin problem will remain unsolved, and we will remain unsaved. So don't come to Jesus seeking stuff. That stuff will not last. Instead, come to him seeking first the kingdom of God, and he will give you the grace to see you through all of your temporal problems for your good and for his glory. He may heal you of your disease, or he may give you the grace to go through that disease and suffer and even die. But if you do that, if you come to him in faith, when you die, you will go to be with him forever. So don't fall for the devil's deception, seeking to solve our small, temporal, earthly problems while leaving the big, eternal, spiritual problems unaddressed. Jesus offers more than mere physical health or worldly benefits. Jesus offers us forgiveness of sin, redemption from judgment, and deliverance from eternal hell. Don't settle for anything less. Don't settle for crumbs of good health and crumbs of wealth and crumbs of a husband or children or whatever. Don't settle for anything less than eternal life with Christ. Make sure you have trusted in him alone for your eternal salvation. Don't take your calling and election for granted, but make it sure. Commit to live for Jesus today and tomorrow and every day for all your days of this life. 
And ask yourself, it's good to test ourselves, ask yourself, did I obey Master Jesus today? Not to earn my salvation, not to, to get credit from him, but to thank him for saving me. Did I do everything for his glory, whether I ate or drank or whatever I did? 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Did I live for myself or did I live for him who died for me? 2 Corinthians 5, 15. Did I demonstrate that my faith is genuine today? That is, that it is the obedience of faith, Romans 1, 5. Did I obey God's word as revealed in the Holy Scriptures? Did I obey God's delegated authorities? Romans 13, 1. All authority comes from God. When I sinned, and we all sin, when I sinned, was I quick to say, I am the man and repent? Or was I quick to excuse myself and cover up my sin and guard it so that I can keep doing it? Do I love God and his word? Do I love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength? Or am I, like some of these in the crowds, am I coming to God so that he can improve my life, improve my situation? Improving my situation and then going back to the same old way, unchanged and unregenerate. Am I like these demons, able to admit you are the son of God, but unwilling to put my faith in him, to trust him alone for my salvation? The demons are incapable of doing that. The offer is not available to them, but it is available to you. So don't settle for mere demons' faith saying you are the Son of God. Rather, entrust yourself to Christ alone and be eternally saved. See, brothers and sisters, we must all answer the question that Jesus asked his disciples in Matthew 16. What about you? Who do you say that I am? And everyone will answer, one way or the other, everyone will answer, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We must give that answer because it is true. It is the unchangeable truth. You can give it now in faith and be saved. So give that answer and entrust yourself to Jesus Christ. Or you can give it on that great day. You can say no now. And then on that great day, you'll be forced to admit this great truth. For every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2.10. So yes, who do you say I am? Yeah, admit you are the Christ, the son of the living God. But don't stop there. Don't be satisfied by mere agreement with this eternal and undeniable truth. Mere agreement is mere demon's faith and it cannot save you. Don't do that and don't come to Jesus for mere earthly benefits. That is the multitude's faith, and it does not appear that it saved them. Instead, make sure that you have trusted in him alone for your salvation, that you call upon the name of the Lord and confess him as Lord and Savior. That is saving faith. That is the one thing needful. That's the purpose of our whole life, is to confess Jesus Christ as Lord and to cry out to him for salvation. And if you have done so, then live for him who died for you. Walk in God-glorifying obedience and testify to others how God saved you and made you alive and he can do the same for them. Live a life of joy and live a life of glory to God. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. We are blessed in this church in that we are challenged frequently to examine ourselves and see are we born again. That's not a message for anyone else. That's a message for you. That's a message for me. That's a message for everyone. So don't be satisfied that you know correct doctrine. Don't be satisfied that you've agreed that Jesus is God. 
ask yourself, have I put my faith in him? Have I truly trusted in him? Do I live for him? And am I eternally saved? Lord, the word has gone out and the challenge has gone out. And Lord, this is a challenge that has been made many times from this pulpit. But we pray, Lord, that each person here would consider this challenge. That each person here would make his calling and election sure. That each person here would be certain that they have cried out to you. Lord, we are blessed to have this church. We are blessed to live in this place where we can learn your word. But let us not be satisfied with merely knowing your word. But Lord, help us to make sure that we have truly trusted in you. That we are truly saved and born again. And we ask you to have mercy on all who go to you, on all who examine themselves, Lord, that you would truly save them for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.